0: Everybody and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson, uh, talking to you again, blabbing at you. Um, and uh, in case you're just tuning in for the first time, this show covers all things marketing, innovation, ideas, um, creative business strategies, etc., etc. And uh, we try to have fun while we talk about it. And uh, today, I have uh, Pop Tart impresario um, or in Kingpin. No, just kidding. Uh, Steve Street. Say hello, Steve. Uh,
1: Chris, how are you? And uh, it is true that I'm intermittently eating a um, brown sugar frosted Pop-Tart as we speak. Oh, details.
0: Brown sugar. <laughs> <brush. laughs> uh, I like you already. You're already detailed. This is going to be a great interview. Uh, why are you eating a Pop-Tart
1: on, on the show? This is this is the uh, first, by the way. I was hungry, and it was the fastest thing I could think <laughs> to put in the toaster, albeit I uh, try to be healthier. But it yeah, is there's
0: bagels. and I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you could have. Eh, that's fine. Um, I, I like Pop-Tarts myself. So um, I wanted to at least start with a little bit of 101, right? Um, Steve Street. Earlier I was singing Easy Street from um, – uh, from Annie, the original one, but ah. I, I don't know if you go by that name, but, no. uh, but we'd love to just get a sort of a one-on-one on you and, um, and Green Dot Corporation and the, the multiple, uh, things that are, are, are in the, the proverbial
1: envelope there. Uh, you bet. What's the, uh, uh, what's the best place to start? Do you want to hear about a Green Dot Corporation and, uh, well, how that got started, or yeah, or, let's, I mean, or, let's
0: kind of back up. You, you know, well, yeah, let's, I mean, let's start with with Green Dot. That would be awesome, um, just to, to get people up to speed with where you are. I mean, it's an amazing, amazing story and amazing product. So um, we can start there, and then and kind of back up to the the history of, of Street.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, um, today Green Dot is a bank holding company um, based in Los Angeles, California. And our main product that we invented many years ago is the prepaid debit card that you see sold at, uh, retail stores all across the country. So if you go into any, uh, CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens, 7-Eleven, um, Walmart, uh, you know, so forth and so on, you'll see a green dot rack that has a collection of MasterCard and Visa products that are prepaid debit cards. They're just like a bank account. They are a bank account and uh, consumers can use those to, uh, use, uh, Uh, to control their money and uh, be part of the banking system in the same way that you may have a checking account or or savings account. So that's what the product is, and uh, that's what we are today, and it's become a good-sized company. But maybe through this interview, I'll I'll share with you the rest of the story. Oh, that'd be great. And you'll have the background.
0: I guess, well, define invented, right? You know, I think we hear that term a lot, especially in these kinds of interviews where, you know, um, and when you talk about the prepaid card industry, right? Let's, can we get the sort of the, the beginning of the invention yeah. of what is now known as prepaid?
1: Well, so, uh, rewind, uh, to the dark years of 1999 when, uh, the internet, uh, was called online. And when the way you accessed that internet was through a dial up, a connection from typically it was America online or prodigy would have been two big ones. And I'm sure there were others that not remember. Um, but, you know, that's the world we lived in, and you would uh, boot up on your your modem, and you would go get a cup of coffee, take a shower, and by the time you got back, uh, if you were lucky, you were online. And uh, that's where we were. Uh, broadband, or what became known as high-speed, was not really uh, known except to certain college campuses in a trial format. And, but everyone knew that over time, broadband and high-speed would be in every neighborhood and then in every home and apartment building. And when that happened, the Internet would one day become something big with uh, bigger files that you could exchange and all the things that, in fact, has happened. And it's happened in even a bigger way than I think anyone even predicted back then. Yeah. Uh, but back then, it was all a dial-up world. And I was, having, uh, I was in the radio business, so I was in the radio business for almost 20 years uh, as a disc jockey early in my life, very early, like college-aged and that kind of thing. But I was not very good at it, but I did it. And uh, although my only claim to fame, Chris, as a disc jockey is uh, – I was the fill-in host for American Top 40 with the legendary Casey Kasem. Oh, wow. And I worked for Casey uh, for a short period of time. I did about eight shows. And then he called me up and fired me because he said I was not natural in the way I read the long-distance dedications.
0: <laughs> oh, man. I, sh- I should have I <laughs> sent you a dedication just so you could read it on this show. And we could get we could either prove him wrong or uh, nod in agreement.
1: Well, uh, if, if uh, <laughs> Mr. Casey were alive today, he'd be jealous that I was on your show, and he would have known that he made the wrong choice. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: yes. well, if if he had not said that, you probably would not have taken this path, right?
1: I mean, it, <laughs> well, you, you know, you got you no, got point. It sort of a side job. I was at that point a manager <laughs> in radio, and but uh, but enjoy the creative aspects of radio in those days. I uh, came up with a lot of different formats, or I took other people's formats and executed them differently and had a very successful career um, in uh, formats that were targeted towards families and women in particular, and the format is called Adult Contemporary. It's still around today. Every market uh, in America has a leading adult contemporary radio station Um, in Los Angeles would be KBIG or Coast FM, and those stations are all still there, and and those are the types of radio stations that I have programmed and managed around the country.
0: And that's not to be confused with adult websites.
1: Correct. What's that? no, yeah, adult contemporary would be uh, moms and minivans <laughs> okay, and that great. kind of thing.
0: Right. yeah, it's a whole. Other think genre. think
1: uh, Celine Dion, and uh, you know that kind of music. Yeah. So, okay, so I was doing that, and uh, and uh, was leaving radio after 20 years, and as one of the little goodbye parties that I had, or, or lunches that I had, I was invited out to lunch with a guy who was a record rep at uh, Disney Records, or I think back then it was called Hollywood Records over there in Burbank and I had uh, lunch there with him. And he told me about this new website they had called go.com, uh, which was the Disney ABC website. And uh, that, you know, it was going okay, but that really only kids ever came to the site and they never bought anything. And so he wasn't quite sure whether or not it would work out. And I said, why don't kids buy anything? And he said, well, because kids don't have credit cards, adults do. And most parents don't want their kids to buy stuff online with their cards. So that was really the, the beginning of the idea, and I came home, and I was driving home, and I thought of something called a million-dollar idea, and I wrote it down on a piece of paper, and I went to my neighbor's house, a fellow named uh, Chuck Murray, who lived next door to me in, uh, in San Marino, California, and I said, hey, Chuck, I have this idea for a credit card for kids, and you know, he said that was interesting, but that was about that, and, uh, and over some months to come, I refined that idea and realized it can't be a credit card, it had to be a debit card. But you have to be a certain age for a debit card, and you start learning all the technology and all the rules. And uh, that's what the invention or the thought was. But the product didn't exist. There was a product uh, that was similar that was sold by some banks called Visa Bucks. Uh, and these were all called host-based stored value cards. And as the process went further, it occurred to me that nobody knew what that was, and it wasn't a great marketing handle. But whenever I explained my idea to investors or to a family member, um, they would say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Do you mean like a prepaid telephone card, like a calling card? And I'd say, yeah, just like that. When you use the minutes you're up and here, when you use your money, you're done. And I said, prepaid, I'll call it a prepaid card. And that's how I came up with the phrase prepaid. <laughs> this is amazing. And uh, with that, we launched with the iGen MasterCard, which stood for Internet Generation. It launched at 98 Rite 8 stores in Washington, D.C. Metro. It sold okay. But uh, kids were not buying it to buy stuff online. It was adults who were buying it to pay bills and to do various things. And so we talked to some of the customers and said, hey, how come you're you're buying this card? Uh, it was meant for kids. And why did you buy it? Well, we bought it because we have bad credit and uh, can't get a checking account. We can't get a credit card. But, you know, we want to have a MasterCard. I thought, aha, I've got the right product but the wrong target audience. So." Right. We, we pulled off the packaging off the shelf at Rite Aid and uh, replaced it with packaging that was targeted for an adult audience uh, instead of kids. And the product took off, and uh, after Rite Aid came CVS, and after CVS came uh, other retailers. And one by one, we built up to where we are today. And today we're in 100,000 retailers, and we also have a checking account product that's at retail and also online and in the app stores called GoBank. And it's become a big public company, but that's how we started.
0: Now – you know, you hear a lot of entrepreneurs go, oh, and I had the one idea, and then I, you know, I decided to do it. Like, why, why was this the idea you decided to go after? right cuz i i would imagine after especially years in radio and you, you know the number of guests and and just the creative juices that kind of flow in a in a creative production environment you're just constantly thinking of ideas anyway um but why was this the one you decided to kind of put your your heart and energy into um uh yeah just you know why why was this the thing for for steve
1: well i think it was something which is why um you know, After I left uh, radio and went into this full-time, I was lucky enough to have had some Clear Channel stock, and when uh, Clear Channel bought the company I was with, I was with a company called AMF, I and mean, when the company was purchased by Clear Channel, my stock turned into Clear Channel stock, and so I had some money left over, and, uh, and by the time I came up with this idea, I'd blown through a lot of it uh, because I wasn't working and I was living off of savings. And so I think uh, uh, so by the time this almost. one came around, I realized that I had no choice but to make it successful. And I also had a friend from radio who we're still best friends. His name is Benson Reisman, who was my co-founder. Benson worked for CBS Radio but did the same type of thing I did. And uh, he said, hey, I'll do sales. If you do everything else and you fund it, uh, you'd be the money guy and the manager, if you will, the CEO, and I'll be the sales guy. And that's what we did. And Benson encouraged me a lot too. He said, Hey, I think you have something big here. You know, you should really focus on this. And I think it was a combination of desperation knowing that I really couldn't change course and I had to be committed. And we did think it was a pretty cool idea and we were getting traction in our sales meetings with retailers. And so, uh, we, we kept at it, but it's not obvious. Uh, the idea is not obvious in retrospect and the product success has not been obvious. Uh, and it's been a wonderful journey. I mean, there's been so many near death experiences over those 15 years that the company has been around, but that's part of the journey and it worked out. Okay. But that's, but that's why that idea made it. I think it was in the absence of any better ideas, uh, it, it seemed like the right
0: idea. Well, it's kind of it's kind of like stay the course, right? Like, you know, especially yeah. if, if you've got like, if, you know, you're halfway there, right? you look back and it's too far to go back and you look ahead and it's almost too far to see, but you're yeah. like, stay the course. And wh- what was that piece of it? Like, because I'm sure there was a transition part, like you said, you were kind of running out of your own personal money. I'm like, you, you may have needed your own prepaid card at that point in time. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, what, like, what were you going through at that point where you go, like, uh, you know, you're kind of in the middle of the sea of Decision.
1: Well, it wasn't a great time, you know. Um, and I was thirty. Uh, I'm fifty-three now, so maybe I was thirty-seven. Let's call it thirty-eight at that point. And uh, and I had uh, two of my own kids. I later ended up adopting a bunch of kids, uh, so I had an even bigger family after that. And um, and it was not a glamorous time, you know. I've, you see a lot of stories and movies, uh, uh, you know, where it's very sexy to be a startup and uh, you know, it's a lot of young people talking fast and having parties and uh, all this exciting thing. <laughs> totally not true. Uh, that was not my experience. I mean, it was, a, it was a depressing, grueling, stressful period. I had kids who were in school. I had a wife who didn't uh, work at an upside job. And, uh, and uh, I was coming close to losing my house and uh, losing uh, any support system and anticipating, gosh, well, I have to move in with my father-in-law in Hollywood, Florida, or uh, if I sold my house, how much could I get? And could we afford an apartment to keep the kids in school and all that? It was not sexy or romantic or glamorous. It was depressing, stressful, and anxiety-ridden. And really would never wish it on my worst enemy. But, it, it, but at the same time, as I look back at it now, it was important. If it had been easy, I probably would have blown it. In other words, um, if, I, if I had been a wealthy man back then, I would have given it up in a heartbeat. Way too difficult. Or... If I had known banking better, and I w- I knew nothing about the financial services industry, if I had known, I would have probably dropped it because it would have known how hard it was. But right. when you, uh, but but I think ignorance is bliss many times when you're running a startup, and desperation is the fuel that drives ambition, and uh, and I was both desperate uh, and didn't know everything, and I think that came together to make a success. But as I said, it's not obvious, and it was not a. Uh, not a pleasant or enjoyable time. It was a stressful and anxiety ridden time for me anyhow
0: all right desperation and ignorance. I just wrote the, wrote that down uh, as <laughs> the two <laughs> pillars of uh success no it, it, it's i mean there is a theory around like um being too naive to know better. Right, and I think that's right. kind of where a lot of innovation comes from because you don't know the rules. I think once you, once a lot of people learn the rules, like they start to play by them. Um, but- there's a
1: great quote from the movie uh, Titanic, which sounds silly that I'm quoting, but there's a narrative voiceover at some point in the movie, and it was talking about the captain of the Titanic, who was the most experienced captain in the uh, White Star fleet, I think it was called that. Owned the Titanic, and they appointed this captain the head of the Titanic because he was their most experienced captain, and this was their most expensive and most important ship. And there's a great uh, uh, expression that says, uh, all 35 years of that captain's experience conspired to cause the sinking of the Titanic, because the captain was so convinced that he knew the right answers, he had sailed so many other kinds of ships but was not familiar with this new ship, with all this new technology in that day. It was a very advanced uh, ship for its time. And had have they have had a younger, less experienced captain, he would have actually likely not sunk it. And it's a great expression, and I think that's very true in entrepreneurism, that uh, if, if I had been a 35-year veteran banker, I would have had 100 reasons why this would never work, and I would never have even pursued the idea. And that's, uh, that's true. That's a great example.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's great. I I liken myself to Denzel Washington in flight, where I was just too inebriated to make a a logical decision. (laughs) Uh, That's how Innovation Crush started. So, um, no, but, uh, you know, I think the application of, you know, those rules – is there a difference between the climate of business and entrepreneurship now and the climate of business and entrepreneurship when you started it, right? Because mm-hmm. startup is like second, uh, you know, uh, automatic word that just falls out of people's mouths. Now uh, you join in any conversation in any creative space, like, Oh, I have a startup board. This is, you know, Oh, we're looking at startup, it's startup, startup, startup um, versus, you know, you 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 launched this company at a time where it wasn't as rampant or cool uh, to to be doing this. Um, so, can you kind of speak to the right. difference between then and now, and like you know, what what some of the?
1: Well, I think there's uh, there's probably more infrastructure now for somebody who has a startup. Uh, although you had it then, you had incubators uh, certainly then. You had a lot of venture capital and a lot of successful startups, and you had the internet bubble in '98, uh, '99. So, I think you had. Uh, Certainly, a lot of startups, but my my sense is there's more infrastructure, there's more knowledge, and more process that's put around how you build a company from scratch. But um, and there may be at least in financial services way more regulation and way more process. But having said that, I'm I'm sure that is very similar, and probably has been. There's some great shows if you ever get a chance to watch them on the History Channel and others that talk about like the titans of America and how U.S. Steel was born and how General Electric was born and really fascinating things. And even looking at those uh, stories of entrepreneurism dating back 100 or even 200 years ago, or even America itself, which was an entrepreneurial startup uh, by the people like George Washington and others who came over from Great Britain, right? So um, even the country was an entrepreneurial startup that wasn't sure that it would work and that it would make it and broke all the rules. And... um, you know, very unique a lot of uh, start to our own country.
0: <laughs> there are um, a lot of rules that were broken at at that point in time. But yeah, right. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of like, and, and that's why, you know, I look at sort of the Airbnbs uh, of today or the Ubers and even kind of what you're doing, right. Is it's kind of like bending the rules, you know, um, I'd like to to chat a little bit, you know, obviously about GoBank and, and Green Dot. And um, I, I would start with, what have you learned about your demographic? Right, you talk about this shift and this pivot at the very beginning, <laughs> where you're like, "Oh, that's not our audience. This is our audience." Um, right. So, tell us a little bit about that group and how you've been able to grow that over over the course of the years.
1: Well, our uh, our mission uh, has broadened over the years, and, and our mission as a company, meaning Green Dot Corp and Green Dot Bank, is to reinvent personal banking for the masses. And we define the masses as, um, in effect, being the other 99%. um, Demographically, it's American households making less than $75,000 a year. And, you know, that means that if it's a household, right, that means you could have two or three workers in that household. And uh, so that means you're not making a lot of money in any one individual. And that demographic is is more than two-thirds of the entire country. Households making less than $50,000 a year among all workers in the household is uh, half the country. So it's a very, very big demographic. And the way that things have evolved, you have two macroeconomic changes happening that have made things uh, look good for green dot. And has helped us a little bit. One is the fact that, um, the banking infrastructure that we have today in our country was never made to service uh, low income people at scale. So, uh, you always had low income populations in the United States and in every country. Uh, we've, always, we've always had poverty, always, but it was more of a niche kind of a thing, and people always knew where "quote unquote" the low-income neighborhood was. They always knew what a low-income family looked like, or at least that was the way the world worked thirty, forty, fifty years ago here in the United States. Right. right? But uh, and and so banking targeted middle-class Americans, upper-middle-class, and upper-class, because those were the uh, the wage earners who could afford a mortgage or a new car or could afford to pay back a credit card or whatever the case may be. And it was a very large market. When I was, again, I'm 53, when I was growing up in the 1960s America, it was very common uh, in middle-class America that you would have a neighbor who sold insurance for State Farm, another neighbor who made their living selling appliances at Sears and Robux. And you could make a living that way and have a very suitable middle-class lifestyle in America. But you don't have that today. You have... Uh, a service industry of, uh, of people who are lower wage earning, and then you have wealthy folks, and the middle is really somewhat of a, base, a vast uh, decay, if you will, of, of, of population, and so that's been a real change in our macroeconomic conditions in the country. Well, what does that mean? That means you have banks that have a model <clears throat> that embraced middle and upper class Americans, but there's fewer and fewer middle class. You have a lot of lower middle class and lower class and a lot of upper class, but that middle has vanished a little bit. Right. You have a lot of Americans who are underserved by traditional banks. They can't qualify for credit. They may not be able to pay back loans and, um, and get approved by underwriting. Uh, or there may be other conditions where they just don't have enough money in that bank account to make them a profitable customer for that bank. So we've benefited from having a large population. Again, this is half the country a in low-income, you know, who make 50000 or less in a household. So you have this large population that really has no banks to call their own, and I want to be that bank, and I want Green Dot Bank to be that bank. Everyone in a country like this should have a bank to call their own where they're welcome, where the bank understands how they live, where the bank understands how to underwrite them, where the bank understands what they need in their family. Every, every, you know, citizen should have that. And I want Green Dot Bank to be that bank for this population segment. Now, and so that's what that mission means for the masses. Now, when you, say, and, uh, when,
0: you, yeah. when you say bank, right, you know, a lot of different things come to mind. Like, you know, one stat that I heard is that you guys have more ATMs than Bank of America and Chase combined. Is, is that right. correct? Um, but no brick-and-mortar yes. facility, correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, there, we don't own the ATMs, but there's a good example of innovation. Uh, w- rather than go out and buying installations of ATM machines and servicing them, there are wonderful new age companies uh, out there that, whose job it is to own fleets of ATMs. So we put together, a, you know, cobbled together a network uh, using partners at the companies that are in the ATM business and uh, cobbled together this massive network of 42,000 plus free ATM machines. Uh, and you're right. The B of A or Chase would have say 16 or 17,000 machines. So it's a very, very large network of free ATMs. But even that was an innovation, right? Because, Banks don't generally partner with other ATM companies that do their own thing, and that's a good example of how we've been able to of Achieve a lot for our customers without spending a lot.
0: That's funny. I mean, it's one of the you know when I look at sort of the obviously the poster child for big business failure is Blockbuster, right? And how Reed right. Hastings walks in this product to them and goes, "Hey, you, you want to buy this?" And They're like, "Man, eh, no thanks." <laughs> you know, kind of kick them out the door. But you know, one of my personal philosophies is to survive. Either you uh, mimic, collaborate, or acquire you know, uh, what other smaller and nimble companies are doing. And I think collaboration is key to, to innovation. You guys, it sounds like you've, you've mastered that to, to,
1: uh, yeah, we partner with a lot of innovative companies. We like innovation and for the customer, uh, they don't particularly care. They just want what they want when they want it. And that brings me to the second macro trend that's happening. I mentioned the first is the vanishing middle-class and a lot of underserved Americans, the second macro thing uh, benefiting us, macro trend, is millennials. So uh, somebody asked me recently, uh, Chris, well, what? how do you define a millennial? And there's years of birth and different things you can use to define that group uh, demographically. But if you were to ask me about their characteristics, their behavior as consumers, is that these are transactional people. A millennial is a transactional person, not a relationship person. So... An example is somebody older who's not a millennial may say, hey, I'm going to go buy a dress for this uh, cocktail party. I'm going to go to Macy's. And you say, well, why Macy's? Well, that's where I always go, and I've shopped there for years, and they always have a good selection of what I want. And that's okay. Nothing's wrong with that. A younger person, a millennial, would say, hey, I want to buy a cocktail dress. They're going to go to Google, type in the phrase cocktail dress, and they're going to see a bunch of dresses pop up online, and they're going to buy one or two or three, and have them delivered to their home and try it on. And they really don't care where that dress came from. Uh, or another example, a more male example, uh, is uh, when I was young, if you wanted to buy a TV, you went to Sears. I'm not even sure you went anywhere else but Sears uh, or a washing machine. Where else would you go but Sears? Um, now you type in the word washing machine and you buy it, and whether that washing machine from Home Depot or Lowe's or Sears or B&H camera or some appliance store in upstate New York you've never heard of, you don't care as long as it's the brand you want at the price you want, it's going to show up at your doorstep. And so millennials have been trained to be transactional buyers. They want what they want when they want it with as little friction as humanly possible. They're not interested in the salesperson's name. They don't want to know where you went to high school. They don't want to know that you have a nice cafeteria where you can sit and have a cup of coffee while you wait for the salesman. They're transactional. And that I think is the biggest difference between millennials and uh, older Americans is that feeling of, I want what I want when I want it. And they've been trained that way in the internet generation where somebody my age was trained in a relationship-based world. No, that's, that's, so, really, it's really, interesting. And that benefits us because we're a transactional bank. You, you, our products are everywhere you are. We're easy to acquire.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, it, it's really interesting. And just in, in that, I mean, that's a huge consumer shift, right? And I think in that, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit, um, how does a brand go about developing or developing an affinity from an audience? Right, like why would I choose the guest cocktail dress, you know, versus right. the other twenty that I'm served? Or if it's all about the transaction, like a go bank versus a you know a chase, you know, you're going to make it easier. But you're going to both chase and you want to be the preferred outlet, right? So how do you go about building mm-hmm. affinity in an environment where it's, it's more about the ease, I guess, if,
1: it, right. if I can summarize. Ah, that's a, a very sharp question. I'm trying to think how much of this I want to divulge. Is, sort of <laughs> is, is, this, is this your secret sauce? The, well, I don't know if it's a secret sauce, <laughs> but it's a, an ingredient in the sauce maybe. So um, I mentioned that millennials are transactional. Uh, low-income people have always been transactional in many ways. But everybody identifies with a lifestyle. So then what you have to do is develop a preference or a relationship about your transaction, which sounds counterintuitive. What I'm saying is my customer base is transactional, but they're loyal to my brand. And so you want to be the brand that is preferred for the transactional behavior, which is different than relationship banking. So I'll give you an example. Um, you're, you're loyal to Google as a search engine, Bing has had a, a difficult time catching on, and most people will still habitually go to Google as their first uh, search option.
0: Okay. I don't even know what
1: Bing and, is. What's that? No, I'm just I'm
0: guessing. I don't even know what Bing is. That's how so oh, far removed I the, am. that's the Microsoft I uh, I'm, version I'm of I'm Google. I'm kidding about uh,
1: that. And it's a good, it's a good service uh, <laughs> and so forth. But the point is habits are there. And the reason is is that when you go to Google, you're not going there for Google. You're going there because you've been repeatedly taught that you're going to have success and that there's low friction. So whether you're buying a TV address, looking for uh, a lot of what uh, restaurant to eat at, you're going to go to Google or you're going to go somewhere else. Uh, and so it is transactional based, but you're loyal to the service that provides that transaction. So the way that green dot markets itself and the way we try to uh, make sure that we have customer preference is we make it easy to buy the card or our other services, which is that transactional part. We don't have uh, uh, we don't give people a hard time with fees that irritate them or collection pack practices that irritate them. So we're sort of low maintenance that way, if you will. Uh, But the brand means when you need something, we're here to give it to you. And Green Dot is a brand that you know, that you trust, that won't rip you off, that has been around for a long time. And so you have a very high preference for the brand, even though what we're selling is a somewhat transactional service. In the case of uh, GoBank, which is our checking account, that is different. That is more of a longer relationship. People get it because it's easy to get, but you use it as your checking account because they like the product and and they feel like they may have a relationship with the product. But it is a, a tough marketing challenge, and, uh, uh, and the risk of transactional uh, companies in a millennial world is uh, that you're hot today and maybe ice cold tomorrow. So the trick is to be able to form that relationship and be known as a good, safe transactional provider. And it is tricky. It's something we've done extraordinarily well, in part just by staying power, in part by luck, and in part by skill but that is something we've been able to achieve with our brand, which has been very powerful for us.
0: Now, you you know, it's interesting you talk about millennials versus, not versus, but, and, uh, low income consumers. Um, and and uh, I would imagine in a lot of ways they're similar. Can you just talk about like what some of the similarities and differences are? Cause I feel like if I'm, you know, 29, whatever, like when I was 29, I didn't have a lot of money anyway. Like I, so I was both, <laughs> I was a millennial and I was broke. So, uh, right. <laughs> so, so like how do you, do you separate those out? Or what do you see as like some differences and similarities between the, the two?
1: No, we don't, we don't break them out. I mean, different products target different segments for different reasons. Uh, but, but generally, uh, being low friction and easy to get and having very fair and transparent fee policies, that's in fashion no matter how much you make and what your age is. So those are sort of universally held positive attributes as a brand. Um, so, uh, no, I think we try to design all of our products to be that way. But it's just that if you're older, you're likely not going to gravitate and you're uh, to it. If you're 55 and you have money, your relationship guy is just based on how you were raised in America. So you may, if I say to you, what bank do you use? That individual may respond, Oh, I use Chase. What do you use them for? Everything. They're my bank. I re- I'm a relationship guy, and I've used Chase. I'll be proud of it. For 20 years, I've been with Chase. You've heard that before, right? Yep. I've been with Bank of America 27 years, and they're proud of that. A millennial would never even think that way that say, Well, I use this for this kind of a product, I use that for that. I think I used bill me later, but I'm not sure. But I think I used bill me later for a loan to buy that lawnmower. And I think I used B of A once when I had a car loan, but I'm not really sure. So it, it, the mind just works differently. Yeah. And, uh, and most of our customers, again, are in that uh, transactional world. And so our marketing uh, is about the reliability of the brand and that we're here when you need when we need you. But you wouldn't have a commercial that would say green dot, for all your banking needs. That that statement would not make sense to a millennial. Right. But it wouldn't make sense to somebody 55 or 60.
0: Well, it's interesting you talk about it like the, the um, transactional platforms, right? I, I, someone sent a, an email around and said, oh, I have Jay-Z and Beyonce tickets. Who wants them? And I was like, I'll take them. Um, right. And I was like, all right, uh, where do you want to meet? And they were like, well, just pay me on Venmo. And I'm like, who is this, really? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> there's there's this, you know, kind of, now I've been invited to another platform where I'm going to put my personal information into and, you know, I, I'm making a transaction with somebody who I, I really don't know that well but right. for whatever reason you like I don't know if it's peer pressure or what if there's a psychological you know uh, kind of term that you go like oh I gotta okay I guess I'm I'll be cool if I use venmo um, do, can you is there any insight you have on that sort of behavior and especially across yeah. multiple platforms
1: it is peer pressure I think that's a very good way of uh, describing it it's called just like knee disease that's what I call it the reason why the internet is so perfect for fraud for so many people is that you're on a site, whatever that site may be, Craigslist or, you know, that's a more notorious one. And it, and it feels like a community. And you say, well, this person is on this site, just like I am, they must be like me. And you assign your attributes to them, which uh, lowers your guard. And, uh, that's why, uh, you know, if a stranger came up to you on the street, even if they were well-dressed and looked well-groomed and everything, and asked you for your social security number and your debit card and your personal pin number in a million years, you'd never do that right? because you're looking at that person and you're saying, well, he's not like me. And why would he ask me that? And he just came up to me out of nowhere. I'm not going to trust this guy. But if that same individual uh, sent you a message on, uh, I don't know what, on Instagram or on Facebook and said, Hey, uh, Chris, it's Steve hey, I've got this really cool, uh, you know, as you said, I've got two tickets to Beyonce tonight. And if you want, I notice you're on Facebook like I am. I'll go ahead and send that to you if you give me your information. You know, you're going to do it. It's just not everybody. Some people are smarter than that. But you fall like, oh, they're honest. Well, why do you know they're honest? Well, they're on Yelp. I mean, they got a four-star review. How bad could they be? You know, they're, And um, so I think that uh, it, it, it is interesting that you would trust a perfect stranger more than you would – Trust somebody that you're looking at with your own eyes, but it's how the mind works, And uh, but it's called uh, just like me disease. When you think somebody's just like you, you're more likely to trust them, and uh, con artists know that, which is uh, why they tend to gravitate towards those kinds of sites and why consumers need to be so aware of it. Well, it's kind of like
0: I mean, you know, the the old hustle used to be call old people, right, and and, you call and ask and tell them you they've won a contest or something. Right. Like, all I need is this information. But um, you're right; we've gotten to this habit of giving up our information. Now, do you see resistance? Because, like, sometimes I. I I have conversations around this idea of a dial back where people are willing to give up less information unless they are a little bit more secure. We were talking earlier today about how many millions of hours worth of privacy policies are not read. Right. So you go, right. you sign up on all these platforms you like, you just, you scroll down and you click the box. You don't read like, Oh, we now own whatever information. Like if you look at anybody's email address on right. Facebook, on Facebook, it's like Steve Street at Facebook.com. You're like, that is not Steve's <laughs> email address. Right. So, um, so w- where do you see like that willingness to give up the information versus uh, I'm going to hold off and wait and see if I actually trust.
1: Well, you. I think people are getting wiser. There's been so many data breaches And the topic of identity theft is now so widespread that I think you're seeing fewer and fewer people uh, fall for what are called phishing scams of the P.H. You've seen, you know, you know, phishing, Uh, phishing scams. But but still people fall for it. The older you are, the more likely you are to fall for it, because maybe the less uh, exposed you are to modern technology and the Internet. So I do think uh, that younger people are more on guard and more wary of it uh, than they used to be. But, uh, yeah, people are willing to share all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and of course, with data breaches, you don't know um, who you're talking to uh, many times. So there's no question that the Internet and cell phones and texting and all that has uh, broken down a barrier to common sense, which is in the old days you looked at somebody in the eye and you made a judgment call as to whether or not you trusted them. And also, uh, you know, the the body, I believe this, I don't know if this is a scientific fact, so I don't want to misrepresent it, but it's my belief that your body is built with lots of sensory skills. Yes. Uh, have you ever gotten on the on an elevator with somebody and you feel just nervous, like, I don't know, this guy freaks me out or my wife has a good sense of that. she like, say, well, I just didn't want to go in there alone because he was the only guy in there. I just felt uncomfortable.
0: Oh yeah. I, and, grew, I grew up in Detroit, so I've always, I'm, there's a lot of people I avoid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, you, but your body, and, and that's really uh, nature, put that in your brain to say, hey, based on the way they Look, talk are holding themselves. Do they look aggressive? Do they look dishonest? Do they look like they're going to hurt you? Your brain is processing a million facts based on the your six senses that uh, God gave you, and that's what you're living off of, and that's how we all uh, have lived for years. The internet takes away from that, right? So you're, when somebody says, "Hey, what's your social security number? We want to uh, you know your your account has been closed unless you provide us with all this information. And people provide it. You say, well, why would you do that? Did he, why did you trust them? Well, it looked official. They had the bank's logo, and uh, but they're not not—they're not face-to-face, so they're not picking up all that sensory perception. And so I do find that people do really goofy things online and information that in your right mind you'd never do in person, but that's the way it works. And I think, to your point, uh, people are less and less uh, doing that. I think there's been great publicity. The government's done a great job of all kinds of – Information around identity theft. I think banks, yeah. ours included, have done a very good job warning people that, hey, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Never give your details to anybody online. They're strangers. Don't do it. But to your point, uh, it does happen. And, uh, and it is uh, one of the, the negative side effects, I guess, of a less personal world.
0: Well, I think when you when you talk about the psychology of it all and sort of those you know biosensory cues that you can pick up, I feel like the the company who figures how to replicate that in a virtual environment. Um, will be a success, right? Like if if I if I did go onto a website and there were you know certain sensory cues that, that I could pick up on, whether that's through some sort of biometric functionality, like a you know like you, like, you, like you, what you'll see on an Apple Watch, um, right. but just kind of because you know Malcolm Gladwell talks about this idea of thin slicing, where it's like the more experiences you have, the less information you need to size up the next time you encounter similar situations. Um, and it's, I think if there's a way to replicate that in, a, in sort of a digital environment, that would be awesome.
1: Um, well, I think it's called Yelp. I think, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think uh, yeah. pretty much uh, you'll eat sushi at any restaurant if it has a good Yelp review, you know, so that's how it works. One of my favorite
0: uh, Instagram photos was a restaurant that said, come on in and try the worst sandwich a guy on Yelp ever had in his life. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to back up a little bit because I mean you've obviously become super skilled at this and very successful and uh, but at the same time, in the beginning, you had this you know sort of a misstep right and and uh, and probably I would imagine the learning curve between your realization that it's not college kids it's low income families. Right. Um, is was a greater learning curve to get to where you are now than it was to go from radio to prepaid calling cards. Call. So wh- how did you m- manage to like learn so much along the way and educate yourself to the degree that you have? I um, know when we talked before, you mentioned a little bit about like just natural consumer feedback that you were getting, but to be able to apply that and to continue to grow and grow and grow over the past couple of decades.
1: Well, um, I've always been uh, gifted with the ability to learn quickly. Um, I make a lot of mistakes. I just don't try to make them twice, but I make a lot of mistakes, and um, so I think uh, I've always been uh, fortunate to learn quickly and uh, to read a lot and to listen a lot, and I've never been ashamed to ask for help when I need it, and I've uh, found uh, repeatedly even now that people love to help you if you ask genuinely and sincerely and politely. Uh, nobody's going to have all the information, nobody, I don't care who you are. Nobody's going to have all the facts, but it's amazing to me how many people won't ask. And, uh, and I will, it may be somebody pouring concrete on the driveway and I'll be curious and I'll ask them, uh, what does that do? And how does that work? And how come this, and isn't it going to be too dry? And, and they'll tell me, no, here's the deal with concrete. And before you know it, you know something about concrete. And I do that all the time. I always enjoy learning and, uh, I've always enjoyed asking intelligent and people, you know, people far smarter than me, which is not a high hurdle, uh, I can assure you, but asking people smarter than me, how come this and why did you say that? And how come in the meeting you looked this way when that guy said this? And, and people are very happy to share that information with you. And if you can store that information and order it in your brain and context, then you rapidly uh, become knowledgeable about a subject. And, and I do that every day, literally every day. There's something about our business our customers, a piece of data I'll see, a new regulation, uh, something that uh, I'm on the phone with somebody far more experienced and smarter than I am, asking them to help me figure that out, and they're always willing. And that's really been, uh, I don't know if it's a secret, but that's uh, that's been a big part of my success is... Uh, is being able to ask the right people the right questions and understanding the answers and putting them into context.
0: Well, it's like you you have to be willing to accept, I call those mentor moments. Right. You have to be willing to, you know, a lot of people go like, oh, who's your mentor? And like, I, I've never personally had one person that I've gone to, but I find myself because similarly to you, I'm just very curious. So I will ask questions and e- any moment can become a mentor moment. You know, if you ask yeah. enough questions in the right questions and at the right time. Yeah. Um, so that that's I mean, that's really interesting. And, and that I kind of if you expand that concept right You're, you know, there is an I in street in your last name, but there is no I in team. So, as you've grown, you know, you start. You, you talked about, you know, your first uh, business partner who came on and, and did a lot of the legwork, um, but now you've grown to be this corporation. How have you gone about developing your team? Like, what do you think about in terms of attributes and needs? And just like, how do you, who do you hire people that you can ask more questions to? Or like, what, you know, what's sort of the strategy and thinking that goes into your, your growth?
1: Well, uh, sometimes, I mean, uh, we have experts in the company who know various parts of their business very, very well. Um, we hire experts, meaning, uh, today I was on the phone with a, uh, an attorney, uh, who I asked for help because he's much smarter than a certain kind of banking product that we're trying to develop. And I don't know as much about it. So that's all this guy does. So I said, Hey, can we talk for an hour and a half? I mean, obviously in that case you're paying them, which is fine. That's all, all good. And, uh, could you uh, talk to me for an hour and a half and let me share with you my ideas and tell me why it won't work or why it will work or what are the options? So sometimes uh, you learn through uh, very specific activities like that where you're paying somebody to help you. Other times you're observing behavior or you're reading the success or the failures of other companies. Um, I love reading about failures, and I also love reading uh, uh, market reports that are negative about my company. We're a public company. We have 21 analysts. Uh, anytime you do that, it's kind of like a bell curve where some analysts are going to think you're a great story, some are going to think you're a horrible story, some are going to be in the middle. And I actually read the negative uh, analysts more than I read the positive analysts because you learn interesting things. And so you'll say, Well, wow, I never thought of the company in that way, but this guy seems convinced that we have a problem here. Do we? Maybe we do. Why would he say that? He must be a smart guy. He's an analyst at a big bank, he must have a view. And, uh, and, and I've noticed a lot of people will dismiss that. They'll say, uh, oh, those are critics and I don't listen to them. I'm actually the reverse. So when we have a critic, I mean, unless, unless they're just idiots or whatever, but generally they're thoughtful people who have a different perspective. And they say, well, why would an intelligent person who clearly knows their stuff, why would they believe X when I believe Y? And it doesn't mean they'll change your mind. Uh, it doesn't mean they'll do things differently necessarily, but you learn a lot from finding people who share a different point of view. And so uh, I do that a lot, and not everybody does. But I think all that has been helpful into making sure that we can evolve our company, attract the right kinds of employees, empower the right kinds of employees, and the right kinds of thinking. We don't do it right all the time. We make a lot of mistakes. We do a lot of stupid things. Uh, but the difference is we don't try to mask it and sweep it under the rug. Uh, you know, we will say to ourselves, hey, that was really dumb. Let's do our best not to do that twice. Right. And uh, that's okay. That's how you learn. And There's nothing wrong with uh Making mistakes—it's uh, how you recover. I think that ultimately uh, dictates your future.
0: I think that's uh, its interesting that you you take in the negative comments. I think because of the internet generation or the information age or however you want to call it, it's we do have a tendency to like ignore the negative. Like you know, if you're a YouTube star and somebody, you got like a. a 98 thumbs up on your cover of Janet Jackson. Uh, I don't know where my metaphors are coming from today. <laughs> but, um, but then you've got those two. It's like some people get caught up on those two thumbs down comments, and, like, it it can destroy somebody. You know, we interviewed uh, Sugar Ray Leonard a while back, and, you know, he's, he was talking about, especially for us, athletes right or even in fight like personal banking is probably the most personal you can get with somebody as a business and you know those comments can make or break you I would imagine in, in some instances but you've learned to kind of turn them into positives. Um,
1: uh, yeah I mean I'm not saying it isn't um, doesn't make you feel bad but all I'm saying is that if you can open your mind to it and say, well, look they're not critiquing you Steve they don't know you and this is really about the stock green dot the stock is it fair that an investor could feel this way? Is it fair that an analyst could have this concern or this fear? And oftentimes it is fair. He say, okay, well, that, that makes sense. I can see where they feel that way. I don't agree with them. Or, wow, that's a good point. I never thought of that. Let's make sure that we take precautions to make sure that this guy's fear doesn't become a reality. But I think you have to learn a lot from all your stakeholders. And, and I think as a company, we do a really good job of partnering with all kinds of stakeholders and uh, listening to everybody 's points of view, I think ultimately, uh, while you can 't please everybody all the time that 's not possible. I do think that more often than not we end up with uh, solutions, products, ideas that um, uh, that are viewed as positive by most stakeholders. Uh, what did little Steve Street want to be when he grew up? Well, my gosh, I wanted to be a big time radio star and uh, and, and um it probably was uh, well into my twenties before I realized I wasn't talented enough to be Howard Stern. And I was barely talented enough to tune in the radio station where he was on. And, and when I was a kid, he was like the big act in Washington, DC and, and other places. I guess he still was pretty big. I don't know, but he was super big back then. And, uh, but, uh, so I wanted to be, uh, a radio superstar, uh, or I wanted to be a big business guy and, uh, or better yet, a big business guy in radio. And so I guess I kind of fulfilled my dreams. I, I made it to some success in radio, but not in front of the camera, if you will, or but behind the scenes. And uh, and I've done okay in business, but there are many people who have done a lot better and uh, many people who have done a lot worse. So, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm an, I've done okay.
0: That's great. Um, and uh, so do you know this show is called Innovation Crush? I hope so. We've been talking yes. for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By the way, we've been talking for, what, 47 minutes? You talked to that lawyer guy for an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> so. Expect a bill in the mail at least at least for half. Um, you bet. Uh, but no, the, the, I'll, we always talk about like things that we're crushing on that are out in the marketplace or out in the world. Is there anything that you see out there you go like, my gosh, that is an awesome thing? Um, cultural trend, a, a restaurant, like whatever it is, if, if, whatever comes top of mind.
1: You know what macro trend I like that I see in my own kids. I have a lot of kids. I have seven kids, and uh, I see it in the younger generation. Is a complete. Lack of judgment and a complete acceptance for all things the same and different. That was not the way my America was growing up. There are a lot of things about the old America that I uh, miss uh, with nostalgia of the way I miss my my parents who are deceased. And I think back to the America I grew up in as a little boy, and I and I miss it so bad sometimes that I feel pain and uh, mourning over it. But at the same time, I look at today's America. And I see uh, so many exciting things that are so much better than when I was a kid, and one of those would be the complete lack of judgment and the complete acceptance of people different than you. Uh, when I was a boy, and I don't need to go into it on a broadcast, but you, you can guess if I grew up in the South in the 1960s, if you were not a certain way in high school or junior high school, either you're beat up right, or something else uh, – uh, and uh, and everybody, you know, it was, it was just a very judgmental time, and, and it's wonderful. I see my kids in high school and the college, and you see a student body, which it can be uh, uh, gay, straight, fat, thin, tall, small, black, white, and, and nobody would even think of making fun of them. Nobody would even think of judging this person because they're different. Uh, and that that's something recent, I think, in the last 15 years or so. I just don't think that was around 25 years ago. And I love that about our country. I think uh, President Obama has done more, whether or not you like him as a president, whether or not you agree with his policies as a leader. Uh, he's still the president of our country, and that office deserves the utmost respect and admiration. And I think that uh, him becoming president speaks volumes about the new America. And uh, and the fact that, he, that uh, he's done what he's done in office, uh, whether, again, you like it or not, it's not a political statement. But the fact is, is that... Uh, Anybody can be a leader. You can now grow up in this country and be black or white or gay or straight or male or female and believe that you, too, one day can be a leader, have a great job, have significance. That is not something that would have been true of America 30 years ago. And I love that macro trend in America today. It's how I was raised. I was fortunate to be raised by very liberal parents uh, who loved people for who they were as individuals. And I learned that from them, and I was very blessed to grow up in a household like that because that was a rare find uh, in the South when I grew up. And um, and at the same time, I see uh, today's uh, youngsters uh, being that way. I think uh, my mom, if she were alive, would have been very proud of what uh, young people are like today. So that's my that's probably my favorite macro change that I've witnessed in in our country. Oh,
0: no, that's fascinating. You know, as you were as you were uh, t- telling us that, I kept thinking about like the influence of technology and how it's brought us closer and kind of exposed our differences, but also allowed us to celebrate them. Um, and that comes from not only just like the categories that you mentioned, but, you know, I, I used to always think about like how you, if you and I were Facebook friends and, you know, I, I've known you as the bank guy and then all of a sudden you have, you know, you go to dance class on Saturdays. I'm like, Oh, Dancing is cool then, right? Like, it's be like, I, you people it it became okay to be a multi-hyphenate and you got interested in the in the (laughs) the 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 things between the hyphens um and those were okay and so you kind of like there was just this a collapse of uh the walls and the barriers between each other and then in that you still found niche groups of very more specific interests you know even more so than oh i like baseball too right it's like no i like uh apple pie with pecans in it they're like oh me too and like let's start a, let's start a facebook
1: group <laughs> yeah i think that's right and that's uh that's a great evolution of our society uh maybe globally but certainly here in our country i think people's acceptance of one another judging people on their talent or their character or their personality and i think that's all fair game to judge people based on their individual character talent and personality when you meet somebody but uh We've learned, I think, as a country, at least for most evolved Americans, to not judge people based on um, race and sex and age. And that that really is a wonderful uh, development of our country. And I'm very proud of us for it. And and, uh, I think that that's probably ultimately what will be our salvation as a country that despite all the problems we have with um, employment rates and salaries and incomes and many of the macro things we're talking about earlier in this interview, that when you can work together, when... That next genius who can solve the world's problems can take any form. Uh, Then you start capitalizing on people's spirits and people's talent and people's character and people's um, ethics and uh, ideas. And that's what ultimately will drive solutions to our biggest uh, problems in the country. And I think that's going to turn out to be our salvation.
0: Yeah. It's, that's great. you know, you, you, when you were talking earlier about curiosity and, and how that breeds innovation, you know, I think the other piece of that is diverse perspectives and being Got able it. to speak from people or speak to people and, and collaborate with people from very, very vastly different experiences than your own and kind of like, Oh, this middle ground thing that we just made up is the, is the solution. It's, you know, um, but, I, but I applaud you for that perspective. Um, as we close, I'd like for you to uh, finish a phrase for me, if you don't mind. Um, okay. Innovation to me is?
1: Thinking up good ideas that nobody else was daring enough to think of, let alone execute.
0: Which, which you have done well.
1: <laughs> it's worked out for me, but there's others where it's worked out far better. But um, I think, uh, you know, hopefully I'll live to be uh, way older than I am today, but I think it's fair to say that in my epitaph, uh, somebody will say I had a good idea now and again.
0: Um, and maybe there'll be a little picture of a of, of a pop tart right right next. To me.
1: <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I don't want to gain any weight, but they are uh, pretty good for a once in a while treat. Uh, I, I would love to die
0: from a pop tart <laughs> overdose. That, like that is a, a way to go. Um, so how can uh, how can people find you in the social sphere um, or find Green Dot? Like, uh, put, let's do let's do the shameless plugs and then find out where we can uh, stalk you a little bit.
1: Well, uh, so uh, GreenDot's website is GreenDot.com, dot ironically enough. So it's GreenDot.com. Dot and because I'm the CEO of a publicly traded company, I'm not allowed to have uh, Facebook. I have one, but it's private. It's blocked. And I can't have any kind of social media because, unfortunately, that's one of the negative sides about being a CEO. But our company does. You have GoBank.com. You have GreenDot.com. Dot you can send notes in through there. Um, and you can, send, uh, you can send me an email. And I'll give you my email address. How's that? But just don't ask for a reply because if I get too many, I may not be <laughs> you can, able to you reply. Can reach but you out want the email address? Just don't
0: expect me to say anything back to you. It's up to you. This is this is this is, this is your uh, this is your stage today.
1: Sure, let's do it. Feel free to email me. Just again, don't ask for a quick reply, uh, depending on the day. So it's S Street, S S T R E I T, at green dot dot com. And if you uh, want to email me with uh, thoughts or whatever, I read them all. It just sometimes takes me a while and. Uh, I'd love to hear from anybody who wants to communicate.
0: That's awesome um, and very generous. So uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. This, is, this has been great. Uh, you know, it, uh, We we haven't had a chance to have a talk around finance, and you, uh, you were the perfect
1: guy for it. So I appreciate that. Well, I enjoyed it. Uh, and, and good questions, and uh, enjoy your podcast, and have a great day. Thank you for inviting me.
0: All right. Everyone, that was uh, Steve Street from Green Dot. And uh, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush. We'll talk to you next time.
1: If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the Internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like, Teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.